Guys, thank you so much for sharing your gifts with us. It, it means the world. You may not hear this. We're kind of an old traditional church, but I can assure you that our hearts are celebrating. Thank you, Bobby. We've been doing a series, and if you're visiting, it'll seem like an odd place to start, but we've been walking in a series on relationships called A Glorious Mess. Glorious because God created us, and He created the world and relationships to be glorious, made in His image to reflect His image, mess. We live east of Eden. We, like our parents before us, are people who struggle with pride, sin, selfishness. Glorious mess. God has not left us alone. He has intervened in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we call the good news. And now, even those who have come and submitted their lives to Him, they are converged in that reality, that tension. Glorious mess. All at the same time. But what God is up to in the world and in your lives and in your relationships, whatever they may be, is to move that once glorious and mess and to take that glorious mess and lead us to only what will be glorious. There's the Bible in four chapters. This morning, we find ourselves in the midst of a particular relationship, parents and children. Let me just ask a question. How many here this morning are children? <laughs> Trick question. If you're breathing, if you're a sentient human being sitting in this room, you are a child. Whether your parents have gone on or not, uh, we are all of us children of someone biologically, but also spiritually speaking. So this is addressed to you. What's interesting about this passage is written by a single man who never had children. And he is teaching the people to throw themselves on the mercy of another single man who had no children. It's very interesting, isn't it? Which means that the Apostle is pushing our imaginations to something bigger than just what goes on at our kitchen table. It's big. He's casting us to look to something larger than just the nitty-gritty. But, it's in that nitty-gritty, everyday labor that you see little pale shards of light of the Gospel breakthrough. So let's read this passage and then let's see if we can address this glorious mess of God redeeming the family. Paul writes this. It's the first verse to give us context of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, in that context, he says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do me a favor and let me pray (laughs) because I'm no expert at this subject. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that You would remind us that You are the good Father. And Lord, because You are good and gracious, we do not have to despair. Despair at our failures of being obedient, honorable children. Or despair at our failure to be parents without anger. Parents who always instruct in the Lord. Lord, lead us to something bigger than ourselves so that we might, in a refreshing way, enjoy one another. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus has come to redeem His creation. That includes families. And it's a venue that He uses uh, most aptly to lead us to Himself. Uh, Alistair Begg is a preacher in our circles used to say, before I had children, I had six theories, six theories of parenting and no children. Now I've got six children and no theories. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that uh, the apostle chooses to address children and parents, children and fathers in particular. Maybe he wants us to look beyond our own horizons to the, the father. I think that's where he's taken us. Well, let's look at children first. And I want to suggest that I'm going to break this up. Children, there are things you cannot do. And children, there are things you can do, according to this, under the light of the gospel. First of all, children, here's what Paul the Apostle says you cannot do. You cannot underestimate your value. You cannot underestimate your value. Paul opens this instruction with a word that does not exist in any other religion, including the secular atheism of today. He addresses children. That is a unique statement in the history and annals of human relationships because even if you travel today, Children are relegated to a status of second-class human beings. Um, It is a stunning statement in this context. You and I aren't as shocked by it, but that's because we've bathed in the waters of a Judeo-Christian ethic for centuries. So it's not uncommon to think, well, of course children are important. But in his world, when Paul said children, people paid attention. In their world, children were property. They were expendable. He's writing to a Roman culture in which parents had the full authority and rights over a child to the degree that if they chose to terminate their life, they could. And it happened often. I read a letter just this week from ancient Rome. It's a father writing to the wife who's about to deliver a baby. His instructions were, if it's a girl, kill it. 
If it's a boy, keep it. Anybody with a disability, anybody that didn't carry their weight, the father had legal right acceptability to extinguish that life. Here, Christianity comes along and it says something marvelous. That these children, they're, they're made in the image of God. And they're special to the Lord. I read this week too that the Nobel Prize winner Eli Wiesel, who wrote a book called Night, and if you hadn't read that, man, go read it. He was one of 400 survivors, children survivors of Auschwitz. So he has something to say about value of human life. And he wrote these words, and I think he's, he's repeating what others have said in the past. If you want to judge a people, you do so by seeing how they treat the weakest members of their society. However they treat the weakest member, that's what you can conclude about them. Jesus agreed. Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, said, let them come. Let the children come unto me. And here the Apostle Paul resonates that same thing. Children, you cannot underestimate your value. You matter. We adults, we repent because we admit we often relegate you send you away out of the room, make sure that you don't bother us at times, maybe even ignore you. You are valuable. You cannot undo it. You cannot underestimate it. That's where God begins in the address to children. And what's amazing is that Paul is addressing children in a worship service in the presence of their parents. That means the parents don't get off the hook. <laughs> if you instruct them in separate rooms, they can say, well, you know, he said this, that. In the presence of the other, they address them. Here's the second thing that these words suggest you cannot do. You cannot be perfect. Children. Children of the social media age, please hear me. You cannot be perfect. Perfect. Paul uses a word here, a command that says, children, obey. Under the surface of a word like that is the assumption that you require the instruction to obey. We're broken. Little children are broken too. We sin. Children sin too. It is in our nature, sorry to be so grim, but it is our nature for me to tell you, do not get the cookie out of the cookie jar. And from that moment on until you achieve that, there is nothing you can think about. Nothing else clouds your mind except, i got to get the cookie, i got to get the cookie, i got to get the cookie. You as adults are that way. Tell me not to do something and that's all I want to do. Because our hearts, they are bent that way. So Paul has to instruct us that we're not complete. We don't have it all together. And children, you need to know that about yourself. Beyond that, children, you need to hear you cannot be perfect in a world that has created immense 
an unprecedented anxiety amongst children, say, ages 7 to 21. Your children and grandchildren are growing up in the age of anxiety. The stares and glares and expectations of the Instagram and the social media world are killing them. Because what it does inadvertently is it puts out images and ideas constantly that if you want to be an acceptable person, if you want to be someone that is celebrated, perfection. So we take 700 selfies to get the one, right? But that communicates and conveys something over and over and over again. The expectation that I have to be perfect I will not be acceptable if it appears I don't have it all together or I've got acne or I made a mistake. There's another one too. You cannot underestimate your value. The word obey suggests that you are not perfect. You need help like the rest of us. And it gives us one more. In the Lord, it says, you cannot expect your parents to satisfy you. They can't do it. They weren't designed or created to do that. Paul says to obey your parents is in the Lord. He's placing them in a designated spot and that is in the protective comfort and the glorious adoration of the Lord which outweighs all of those other voices. However, it is not like us to look at our parents and not cast upon them expectations to fill me up, satisfy me, Make my heart whole, though we try and try. There is a difference between wanting satisfaction and having to have satisfaction. And when our hearts wander from the Lord, we find ourselves longing. If I don't have my parents' perfect approval, I am worthless. Here's where that leads. 2011, there was a strange phenomenon developing in what is literally, and I'm not exaggerating, the wealthiest, most advanced, most secure, most potential block of real estate in human history in Silicon Valley, California, where in 2011, 2012, they began to notice what they called suicide clusters. Not here and there, but all of a sudden, dozens and dozens of children, teenagers, taking their lives. The investigations in the Atlantic uncovered that what was happening was that these kids were, their parents were, of course, Silicon Valley executives. They were the smartest They were the most achieved. They were the wealthiest. They were the most celebrated. And the kids all thought, I've got to be that. So, they killed themselves. Why? Because they couldn't build the resume. They couldn't take enough extra language classes and music and art and learn tennis and golf and dance all at the same time. And that's the expectation. 
And so they collapsed into themselves. But the reason that we do even something like that is because we're looking for the approval and the judgment of a parent. Or reverse that, using the parent to satisfy my heart. Children, please release your parents. Every one of them believe that if they don't do blank, you're not going to love them. And so they frenzy themselves getting you here and there and everywhere so that you will love them too. But they will not fear your heart. Let's pretend for a moment that you've taken up tennis lessons and you slowly but surely get a little better and then you begin to enter tournaments. And one day as you have this just sudden fear of what everybody's thinking about your game and the coach, what the coach has to say and the spectators, what they have to say, Serena Williams shows up, and she pulls you aside after the match, and she says, you got it. You have all of the gifts and all of the potential and all the talent in the world, and I'm here to help you. What would that do for your soul to hear the greatest tennis player to have ever played what would that suddenly do to um, your sense of value? Would you think less of yourself or would you be encouraged by a word like that? What about, um, what about being open to correction? You realize you're not Serena Williams, but here she is, the greatest player ever, to tell you, you've got it. Would you be open to correction? Of course. I want to learn from the best. What about the critics in your head? What about the critics in the stands? What about the critics at home? How loud are their voices compared to the greatest tennis player to ever live telling you, you've got it? All right, how much more so, a la chapter 5, verse 1 that we read, does the voice of the almighty, brilliant pure, holy Creator, all-sovereign, all-good, all-glorious, all-true, how much more does His voice outweigh those others? And His satisfaction outfill those others? That's the point that Paul is driving home. That's what you cannot do. You cannot be perfect. You cannot underestimate your value. And you cannot expect anyone else or anything else to fill your soul. So what can you do? Paul says that honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Here's the things you can do. Accept your mission and point the way. Here's the mission Paul gives to we children all gathered. Honor your father and mother. Obedience is interesting. Obedience is the action of performing what was requested Honor, though, is the reason. For instance, you can obey the command, will you take the garbage out without honoring? I do it all the time. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to like it. I'll do what you say, not because I love you, but because I want you to leave me alone. 
Honor is this heart spring. It's the bestowal of what is good upon another. Some of you have insane parents. Some of you have unbelieving pagan parents. Do you obey them? Maybe not. Do you honor them? Absolutely. Honoring is like this special power that a child possesses to dignify and beautify another person. It springs from a heart that is accepted by God. So it needs no angle. The other thing that you can do, it says, is point us to the better life. Point the way. He says this, that promise made back in Exodus. There was a promise attached to the command. Obey your parents. This is right. And it will lead you into the beautiful land. There, there are two, two things there. He, for, he says this is right. To obey and honor, he says, is right. Now, I can take that to mean it's the correct thing to do. Maybe. But right here is a word used of bigger words that you're used to seeing in the Bible, like righteousness and justice. You're actually, by doing right, coming into line with the design that God has made and created you for. And what's the promise that comes from that? You're expre- if you're interested in justice and having things go righteously for the world, in bringing order out of chaos, there, there it is. There's how complex honor your father, mother, and we can extend that to authority. And you point us to something it says. The, the, the age of the Exodus, it says, so that you'll live long and it'll go well with you in the land, right? That was the promise. I'm liberating you from slavery. I'm leading you through this wilderness. And then you will be rewarded with this beautiful promised land. Don't get hung up on the long life. There are people that do. Who suggest that, well, uh, someone cut down tragically. They must have not been right with the Lord. So I always have to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God who had a crummy life and He died young. Now here, let's expand that to mean that your reward in that is you're getting to live with God. You're getting to bask and you're getting to see into what would be the new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth. What a beautiful thought. Children, man, you matter. You matter. You matter to your family. You matter to your church. And you matter to what Jesus is up to and will accomplish when all is said and done. Believe it or not. Second, he addresses fathers, interestingly. Children, now he turns his attention in verse 4 to fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I'll use the same model. There are things that he's saying you cannot do, and there are things saying that you can do. Those who have fallen into the arms of Jesus and embraced the gospel, the good news, the relief, the mercy of God, they're made aware of something. First off, fathers... Very interesting. 
Paul chooses to dress fathers. Why not fathers and mothers? Honestly, I don't know. I can speculate. Here's what I'll offer. There are a couple of ways to approach that. One is the royal we. You see inherently in verse 2 that it, it means father and mother. But he's just addressed the husbands earlier and suggests that he uses the word head. That they're sort of the representation of that family. So therefore, I'll address fathers. I think there's something more shocking though. Fathers in the Roman world, once again, had absolute authority over their families. Absolute in the sense that they could wield the power given to them, usually in ways that serve their own interests. Fathers would sell their children into slavery to make up their debt. Fathers would give permission to soldiers to take their infants and bash their heads on a rock or leave them out exposed because you didn't want to care for them. That's power. And the older the man and the bigger the family, you can understand people walked on eggshells around dad. And here he addresses them. And he brings them into the light of Jesus and says, like the husband and the wife, here's what the head of the house does. He dies for them. Fathers and mothers, we can assume in that, also, like their children, cannot underestimate their value. Uh, in the ancient world, we mentioned that fathers were thinking too highly of themselves. I can assure you, in the modern world, fathers think too lowly of themselves. Unnecessary components that occupy space in a house and oxygen, whose only task is to go and bring money home. And Paul says, no. You matter. You cannot underestimate your importance. Mothers, we're just going to assume he's applying that to you. Mothers, I don't think, need the same kind of instructions <laughs> that fathers tend to do. If you want to take it this way, you have to understand of the trillions of people who have occupied the earth over the course of history, the Almighty God chose you to raise that child. He placed that child there now for you, with you, under you. That is an amazing thought. You are caring for an eternal soul. Not a future employee. Not a future just husband or father. Not a future baseball coach. An eternal soul. When all of the charades of the things we occupy ourselves with have long since faded, there is that glorious self, that beautiful soul. So, fathers... Mothers, you can't underestimate your value. You matter. God has appointed you for that purpose. Also, parents, you can't be perfect just like your children. Just like children are under the tyranny of perfection, your parents' kids all the more. The moment you come into the world and your mother finds out that she's pregnant with you, it starts immediately. Are you going to bake your own bread? Are you going to make their dresses? 
you're going to put them in daycare? (laughs) Suddenly, all of these pressures begin to descend upon these poor people to say that if you are to be acceptable, if you are to be worthy, you will have to be this and do that with perfection and without complaint and with a smile and with a press dress and with permed hair and with makeup. There's a reason prescription drugs are huge. (laughs) We can't do it. The perfection here directed to fathers, though, starts with this. Do not, again, just like obedience, there's something you're prone to do. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. I had to think about this, and I don't know if I'm accurate. Why would he address anger of all the emotions? So hear this, anger is God-given. God gets angry. He creates human beings to reflect His image. Guess what? They get angry too. But Paul here suggests there's a tendency in us to use anger in such a way that is not in line with Jesus. Um, There's a, a, a tendency for parents, and me in particular, to use anger as a tool to remake my child into my image. And anger is an efficient way to do it. It's quick. It works. Creating a child in my image, and I'll ask you this question, parents, when are you most angry with your children? I'll answer that. It is when they embarrass you. When there are witnesses to their humanity, when there are witnesses to the reality of who they really are, when, as I said this before, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those that hide, those that can't hide, period. Here, though, we don't have that luxury because like children, parents are measured by witnesses. Social media. How many of those beach pictures, (laughs) how many takes does it take to get that perfect beach picture that goes out on social media and everyone sees how wonderful your family is and mine too. And Lamott said, I like the pictures that are in, that are scrubbed. You can see the family as it really is. (laughs) Not that moment. But we put that pressure on ourselves, don't we? Because that's what's going to make us. If my child doesn't sleep the right way, eat the right way, go to the right school, have the right achievements and so forth, people will think myself less than. If you're a believer and your children grow up, there is a huge percentage that your child leaves the faith. What do you do then? Well, I know. You blame yourself. Parents turn and blame themselves because they thought if I just do the formula, then they will be this. But you find out that life and human souls are not math equations. If your child has turned out to be one who's rejected the faith, let me encourage you. You can't undermine their salvation. You don't have that power. 
And let me add to that, you have company like Abraham, like King David, like King Hezekiah. The great models of the Bible all suffered with this malaise. Here's the other one. God loves your children way more than you do. And God is more patient than you are. And His grace can extend farther than you could fathom. We see our children at a certain stage and we conclude that must be it. How do you know? (laughs) You will be long gone before they likely. The point of this is the reason we provoke our children to anger, the reason we wear them out is because we employ them. And so that leads to point three. For parents, you too can't not expect your child to satisfy you. Kind of coming along with that last point, there are lots of folks who believe that to have a child is a do-over. I get to do over. And I'll say this, if, if the child is that which makes or breaks you, you will only break the child. There's a difference between wanting to have wonderful children and having to. There is a difference. We can miss the whole reason God made you a parent in the pursuit of trophies, scholarships, comfortable homes. We'll miss the whole point. We will try to fill ourselves up. I know this from experience. Their success becomes my success. Their failure, my failure. Let me relieve you of that. Will you believe chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Parents and children hear the Gospel in that. Your instinct was to hear the following. This is what your heart tells you. If you will imitate God, then you will be beloved children. And you will labor yourself to death trying to pull off what you cannot do. Hear the words of the Gospel. As beloved past tense children living out of the light of that. Parents, you've taken up piano. You've got a recital coming up. You know Chopsticks and Tiny Soldiers and uh, Camp Town, whatever that song is. You know, the, the, they, they learn. And you, you're going and suddenly Mozart shows up at the concert. And everyone out in the audience is snickering at you, at your flaws and faults and so forth. And Mozart walks up to you afterwards and says, kid, you got it. What do you think about yourself then? How open then are you to his instruction and correction and leading like do not provoke? And how... How do those voices sound in light of that? What if the almighty, infinite, sovereign creator of the universe who holds all destinies in His hand were to look at you and say, you're my beloved child. How would that free you up to do what God has called you to do? And real quick, there it is, the last verse. Here's the things He says do. Don't do, then do. Like your child, accept your mission. 
He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. That's the mission. That's the great calling. That's the power God has given to parents, except your mission. It's an agricultural term. Just like you would bring up a plant, a crop, you water, you tend, but you don't make it grow. Your responsibility is that. You are the Lord's children who are working with the Lord's children. They are His. I I say this not pejoratively. It's always a comfort to me. God is rescuing your children from you. That's the perspective. In that, we rely on Him then for all of His help and all of His leading. And when He says, bring them up, that's what He means. In what? Bring them up to do what? To be what? He says, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents are those who not only accept the mission, but they point the way for their kids. Discipline, instruction, training, correction, truth, grace. It's the constant pointing of the child to their great need of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where that frees you up. You do not have to be an authoritarian nor do you have to be an anarchist. There are two ways to exasperate or provoke your child. One is to overparent, and the other is to underparent. And so he gives us this beautiful balance. You're a person who wields truth, you're not their best friend, you're their parent. And grace, they're just like you, they require tending and patience, and forgiveness, and care. I remember, and I've written this before, and I'm getting long-winded here, but my parents used to force me to come to church. I resented it. I wanted to stay home and watch Lost in Space. And Hazel, right after that, Hazel came on, reruns from the 50s, and I wanted to go play in the sunshine. As I got to be a teenager, I realized, you know, my parents are taking me there to, they're, they're indoctrinating me. They just want me to believe what they believe, so they're forcing me under this. No, 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 flip that. Our children are already indoctrinated, just like you are. We come into this world, and all we know is east of Eden. And what the gospel says is it's recovery time. It's healing time. It's clarity time. It's being able to see for the first time. It's the matrix. You didn't know it. And there it is. Finally, I'll just say this. Of the Lord. The training and instruction of the Lord. The Lord's training. The Lord's discipline. The Lord's instruction. Uh, it is a perpetual pointing of your life to the gospel itself, and by virtue of that, pointing them to the gospel. Here's what the gospel says this is why of the Lord is brought up. If our children do not know the following, we'll kill them. 
if they do not see in us, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. If they don't know that about you, they will assume, like I did growing up, that my dad made straight A's. And I had to make straight A's, and then one day, digging around Grandma's dresser drawers, I found a report card, and he made C's, and suddenly the power was gone. But that wasn't the expectation. Your children need to know that you need a Savior too. You're still a child too in the hands of the Father. If they don't know that, they will become one of two things. They will be Pharisees that terrorize churches for the remainder of their life. They're here, they're keeping the rules, and they're hoisting them on everybody else. The other is that they will flee and never come back because they realize, you know, the rules they say do, they don't do them out of here. But the gospel brings a reality that, yes, God has his commands. My heart dreadfully, grievously violates them, and I need His salvation every day. That environment, when your daughter says, I'm pregnant, she'll have a safe place to land. When your son says, I've been arrested, and they won't call someone else first, that's the reality. Where does all this lead us? Well, I hope you hear this. You're worse of a parent than you think. And you're worse of a kid than you think, right? There's like objective measurements. And you, me, we all don't measure up. So if you hear these words and you leave here with the cat of nine tails slashing your back, you've missed it. He says and begins again, this is the starting place as beloved children. Glorious mess. It's a glorious mess that has one end. Glorious. Go. Breathe. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for Your help because we need it. We ask that You would kindly once again Use our relationships not to be an end in themselves, not to be the thing that makes or breaks us, but that leads us to our greater Father and our greater need. Who among us, Lord, could stand? And yet with you, there is mercy and life and help. Help us to lean on you, Lord, as we care for one another and these eternal souls you've entrusted us to. In Jesus' name, amen.